Hello, today we're talking about facial recognition technology. Everyone seems to think there should be some kind of limitation on how it can be used, even some of the software companies that make and sell it. But what should those limitations look like? And should there be an outright ban? Let's see if we can find out. Hello and welcome to a special episode of On the Merits from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. So as I mentioned, today's topic is facial recognition technology. But first, I want to acknowledge how weird it is that the reason we're even doing this podcast in the first place is because of this. That's a selection from the tooth-achingly sweet Rockettes Christmas Spectacular held every year at New York City's Radio City Music Hall. And that's important because Radio City Music Hall is owned by a company that is controlled by James L. Dolan, who also owns the New York Knicks, the New York Rangers, and that company also has Madison Square Garden. But Radio City is what we're concerned with today because a story involving it totally blew up late last year. Here's some snippets from a report from the local NBC News channel in the Big Apple. It's the Christmas season and, and I was excited and my daughter was excited to go and see the Radio City Christmas Spectacular and see the Rockettes. Kelly Conlon's daughter is a Girl Scout. The weekend after Thanksgiving, members of her troop and some moms took a field trip to the famous venue. But Conlon and her girls wouldn't get to see that show because she, or rather her face, was flagged by Radio City security system. This is what she said the security guards told her as they were kicking her out of the venue. We know that you are an attorney and they knew my name before I told it to them. Um, they knew the firm that I was associated with before I told them and they told me that I was not allowed to be there. Conlin is an associate with the New Jersey-based law firm Davis, Saperstein and Solomon, which for years has been involved in personal injury litigation against a restaurant venue now under the umbrella of MSG Entertainment. I don't... So just to make the dynamics at play here perfectly clear, facial recognition technology prevented a mom from taking her kid to see the Rockettes because of where she works. This, not surprisingly, caused a lot of outrage, and not just outrage, but actual political developments. New York Attorney General Letitia James sent Dolan's company a letter saying its use of facial recognition at Radio City and its other properties might have violated city, state, and federal law prohibiting discrimination and retaliation. The New York City Council is even considering a bill that would outright ban most facial recognition tech altogether. Bloomberg Law reporters Andrea Vittorio and Sky Whitley have been following this story really closely, and I was reading all of their stories, and it made me stop and think. If you think the whole thing with Radio City Music Hall and James Dolan was creepy and wrong, is an outright ban the way to go? Is it an all-or-nothing situation? Maybe it is. Or maybe it's more nuanced and targeted regulations would make sense. That's what we're going to be digging into today. Okay, so let's start with the idea of an outright no-exceptions ban. Some municipalities have enacted bans that apply only to municipal agencies, or temporary moratoriums, but the first and so far only city to extend that ban to private businesses was Portland, Oregon. Hector Dominguez is the Open Data Coordinator in the Privacy Division of Portland's Planning Bureau, and he's one of the people responsible for implementing that ban. He says, initially, the city council did not want to take it that far. When we were doing all the assessment of what we could do, having a ban, we understand, even, even then and now, that that's a very blunt action, right? So we cannot really go 
as a city municipality and just ban a whole technologies. He says there was also the issue of big tech companies and their lobbyists who were urging local lawmakers to not do something so extreme. But after the protests and rallies during the summer of 2020, things changed. You're watching video just into our newsroom on a fourth night of massive protests in downtown Portland. That from our crew. After George Floyd was murdered by a police officer in Minnesota, reports started trickling out that law enforcement authorities were using facial recognition tech to apprehend some protesters. Reports that were later confirmed by a government accountability office investigation. And at this point, I should point out that in this podcast, we're mainly focused on how the private sector is using this tech. But when the public sector uses it, and when I say public sector, I'm really talking about law enforcement, essentially, that raises other concerns that, frankly, could be the topic of their own podcast. But getting back to Portland, the use of facial recognition software after the George Floyd murder did two things. First, it created urgency for the famously progressive Portland City Council to act. And second, it spurred several tech companies, including IBM, Amazon, and Microsoft, to scale back their involvement with facial recognition, either partially or fully. So that's more or less how the city ended up with a ban. The urgency was dialed up, and the most powerful potential opponents of a ban, large tech companies, pulled away from this business and thus lost interest in what the city council was doing. But still, Dominguez acknowledged that a ban isn't the most elegant policy solution. He says the city wanted to find a way that either it or a third party could certify that facial recognition algorithms aren't racially biased, but he says they came up empty. We were started looking into, okay, in practice, how we can find who's the right vendor or good vendor, you know, like how we can use the specific algorithm we contacted uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies to understand better how the, their uh, face recognition vendor test works. Uh, we asked them, can we use that as a way of uh, having certified algorithms? And they say no. Now, at this point, you might be saying racially biased algorithm? What? So here's an oversimplified version of what that means. These algorithms learn to recognize faces using something called deep learning, which involves basically a computer looking at anywhere from hundreds of thousands to tens of millions of images and discerning patterns between them. At least initially, however, the images used to create the algorithms were primarily of white people, which means the technology is more likely to misidentify people with darker skin. Or at least it was. I spoke with executives at two smaller tech companies that are still in the facial recognition biz, and they said that even in just a matter of a few years, the data sets that feed the algorithms have been broadened extensively and misidentification is much less likely. Here's Dean Nichols, chief marketing officer of the company Usto. Those error rates are now less than well below a percent. So what doesn't get reported on is how much that technology has improved and how racial bias is essentially all but gone. I mean, literally less than a percent. Well, although, I mean, if it's like half a percent, that means that, you know, one out of every you know, 200 people are getting misidentified. I mean, that's not small, you know. Well, and we, sh we should talk about, because about, any technology is going to have some level of error. It will never be 100%. Does yeah. that mean you completely throw out the technology? Now, privacy advocates, some of whom you'll hear from in a bit, don't believe the error rates are nearly as low as Nichols is saying, although a 2021 study conducted by the National Institutes of Standard and Technology, that's a division of the Department of Commerce, looked at facial recognition algorithms used for identifying airline passengers, and it backed this up. The top-performing algorithms can be 99.5% accurate. And that gets to the kind of baby-with-the-bathwater argument. 
Sure, facial recognition tech has its challenges and many may find it unsettling, but there are a lot of things you can do with it, things that may be beneficial to society. For example, safely and quickly boarding an airplane or preventing a violent person from entering a school. Do we really want to ban software that can do that? Instead of outright bans on facial recognition software, Nichols would like to see laws that govern how the technology is used, or more specifically, laws that govern how Usto's own clients use the technology. We do as much due diligence with our clients or potential clients up front as we can to understand how they're going to use our technology. And so, and we have walked away from clients. So we've had a client um, who is in Asia who wanted to use our technology to surveil the lunchroom in case that any of their employees were going to be doing an organizing union effort. Okay, we said no. And I should say we followed up with Usto to see if they had an official policy in place to handle clients who act unethically, but they didn't get back to us. Nichols says lawmakers and regulators should be focusing their attention on creating bright lines that let businesses, his company's clients in other words, know what is okay to do and what's not. But not everyone in the industry feels that way. Wonton Tat, the other executive I spoke to, is the CEO and founder of the company Clearview AI. He supports some regulation on his technology, like requiring that its use must be able to be audited. And he says he totally understands why the whole James Dolan, Radio City, brouhaha creep people out. In this case, it's regarding uh, litigation and other lawyers. And it's hard for Madison Square Garden to say which lawyers are working on the case. So they just put all of them on the list. And that's obviously created a lot of uh, controversy because it touches on, you know, some, you know, basic things that we think of as Americans in terms of free association and those issues that, uh, you know, the public response to that has been, you know, more on the lawyer side. But Juan ultimately sees this from a much more libertarian perspective. And he says that facial recognition tech is basically just helping private businesses do what they already have a right to do. I believe on a legal basis, any property owner can do as they please and refuse service for any reason, the key part being any reason there. But actually, that's often not the case, and that's because of the legal concept of public accommodations. Title II of the Civil Rights Act, along with a lot of other state laws, make it illegal for businesses to discriminate against a protected class. Here's Sarah Lambden, a law professor at the City University of New York. We treat certain places like hospitals, hotels, movie theaters, sports venues, you know, places where a lot of people go, uh, a lot of members of the public go, as different than somebody's house or, you know, a private accommodation. And there are special protections against discrimination in those places. So that means that if a business that serves the public starts using facial recognition software to deny entry, and it turns out that software has some type of bias, that business could face some serious legal trouble. The equation is different, though, when we're talking about places that aren't public accommodations, like offices or daycare centers. I spoke to Jake Parker, the head of government relations at the Security Industry Association, a trade group based in the Washington, D.C. area, and he says facial recognition has the potential to totally revolutionize the field of building security. Security has like a, a process that in, in many locations where, you know, some people are not permitted to, to come into the building. For example, if someone has a, uh, this is a good example, this is if someone has a restraining order or someone's not allowed to pick up children, for example, you know, security will are they already have a process in place to make sure that um, that they have know who these individuals are, have photos of them. Maybe it's on a clipboard somewhere. 
you know, but this technology is really the allows alerting of those folks in a way that in a better, more efficient way of screening, you know, building entrance for security staff where they're not going to miss, you know, people like they might otherwise do. So that's some of what will be lost in all-out bans like the one in Portland or the one that's currently up for debate in New York City. It's an argument that privacy advocates, frankly, don't buy at all. You know, I think facial recognition is a really complicated technology, but the public policy solution is simple. You outlaw it. That's Albert Fox Kahn, the executive director of STOP, the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. He also works with several law schools on the East Coast. I think there are forms of facial identification, you know, one-to-one verification that are fine, you know, using it on your phone to unlock the device, using it uh, consensually as the end user to control access to your own system. But when we look at surveillance tools that are based on facial recognition, scanning a crowd, scanning an image, whether it's used for policing, whether it's used by private companies, whether it's used by landlords, to me, those are ripe for abuse and impossible to regulate. And really, the only effective way to protect the public is to outlaw. Beyond the potential for abuse, he says there's a huge question around how companies store the data they have on, well, your face. So one thing I always point out is if your credit card number is hacked, you can get a new credit card. If your social security number is compromised, you can even change that. But you can't change your biometric identifiers. Those are fixed for life. And if we see more and more reliance on biometric identification for all walks of life, then we're going to see more efforts to compromise that data and use that data to impersonate individuals and uh, to compromise their identity. But let's be realistic here. This cat isn't going back in the bag, at least not all the way. A few cities like Portland or New York might enact bans, but it's unlikely Congress will pass a nationwide prohibition. So what's in the realm of the possible? Sarah Lambden, the law professor, says a good starting point would be to focus regulations around the concept of consent, like requiring that anyone storing an image of someone in a facial recognition database would have to at least notify that person. But she says even with this approach, getting consent can't be a one-time thing. Even consent as an imperfect solution is kind of being thought of in a really limited way. So when we talk about consent, we're usually talking about people giving consent or opting in to having their data collected. But I think consent should be raised again and again throughout kind of personal data lifecycle, and that includes facial recognition data, consent to sell data to a third party, consent to share data with law enforcement, consent for data to be used in particular ways, right? You should have the option of consenting in and out of every single type of facial recognition data use. In the meantime, it seems the public policy solution is either all or nothing. It's either anything goes or an all-out ban. Ultimately, this is an issue that may get messier before it becomes more clear. Or in other words, we may see more facial recognition stories that generate more public outrage before policymakers and legislators feel the urgency to take action. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz, along with our editor and executive producer, Josh Block. We also had reporting help from Andrea Vittorio and Sky Whitley, and we had additional editing help from J.N. Kasuga. As I mentioned, Andrea and Sky have been covering the heck out of this topic, so check out our website, news.bloomberglaw.com, 
for all their stories. On the Merits is taking a brief two-week break coming up, but we'll be back after Memorial Day for more episodes. Until then, thanks for listening. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court, the filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Bloomberg Law's Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon of the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.